the Gospel according to Zechariah, where Zechariah has had a whole series of uh, confusing visions placed before him. And uh, we have another vision uh, to look at in Zechariah chapter 4. So do open your uh, uh, Bibles with me again. Zechariah 4, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that your word is rich as well, Lord, and has the power to, uh, to speak to our hearts that uh, nothing else has. We ask that you'll speak to us this morning as we uh, try to, to understand these visions and to see how they apply to us. Please be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know whether you ever watched a film and um, felt thoroughly confused. Perhaps uh, I'm confused by the complexity of the plot. Uh, that happens to me sometimes. Judy gets very frustrated because I forget the names of characters. So when they're referring to um, characters, um, I can't, can't imagine who it is. Or sometimes I mean, these film plots are just so clever, clever, aren't they? With all sorts of illusions and clever little bits and bits and bobs that um, unexpected twists. You just feel completely at a loss. I have a strong suspicion that when I watch The Matrix Reloaded, it's going to be a little bit like that. Well, if you've ever felt like that, I think you will sympathize with Zechariah. By chapter 4 of, um, of uh, this prophecy, um, <coughs> Zechariah seems to be thoroughly confused, even possibly exasperated by the, uh, uh, the visions that have been presented to him. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll, you'll know that... Um, <coughs> Zechariah lived in a time in Israel's history when they were slowly and painfully trying to rebuild the life of the nation. They had got, been uh, sent into exile years before, and in dribs and drabs they'd been coming back from exile and trying to rebuild the temple. It's 520 B.C., They still, though, live under the uh, powerful forces of the Persian Empire, and especially of, uh, of King Darius. They felt powerless. They felt disheartened. And in response to that, God starts to give Zechariah a series of encouraging visions. But after... Um, four of uh, those sorts of visions. It seems to have been all too much for Zechariah um, because um, it appears that he went to sleep. Chapter 4, verse 1. The angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. Perhaps it was sleep, perhaps it was a, a dazed trance. So overwhelmed was he by these visions. The angel, though, is not going to let him off. He uh, shakes him awake. And um, Zechariah seems, from this moment on, distinctly more belligerent. Perhaps um, uh, it'd be too much to say that he uh, says to the angel, it'd better be good what you're going to tell me. But uh, he certainly seems very keen in chapter 4 to start saying to the angel when he doesn't understand what's going on. 
he seems determined to point out to this angel throughout chapter 4 that what he's being told is about as clear as the river Thames in spate. He sees this uh, vision of a lampstand that we'll look at in, uh, in just a minute. Um, but then in, in verse 4, he says to the angel, What are these, my lord? The angel answered, Don't you know what these are? Zechariah boldly says, No, my lord. Actually, as you'll see, the interpretation that Zechariah's then given seems far from, uh, from clear. And uh, uh, so Zechariah seems to have got the bit between his teeth and uh, asks about another aspect of the vision, this time the uh, two olive trees that have appeared. Do you not know what these are, says the angel? And uh, you can imagine through clenched teeth, Zechariah says, No, my lord, I don't. Of course, we do have the explanations that uh, um, were finally prized out of the, uh, the angels, so we have a little bit more help than Zechariah did when he was asking his questions. But I think it would be fair to say most of us here weren't uh, immediately enlightened as we read the passage, were we? Interestingly enough, the book of Revelation draws a lot on the imagery of Zechariah, and especially this chapter, Zechariah chapter 4. So this morning we're going to see that uh, the last book of the Bible will help us to understand this vision. But I think we're going to have to work quite hard this morning if we're not going to end as Zechariah began by saying, what are these? Let's just remind ourselves just briefly of uh, what we've seen so far. First of all, we've had uh, a whole series of four visions, haven't we? The first one, horses in the myrtle trees. And there we learned that God is watching over the whole world. Then there was a second vision, four horns and four craftsmen. We learned there that God rules over all the powers of his world, but he's not going to use those powers to rebuild the kingdom of God. Do you remember that? The third vision that we saw was a man with a measuring line rebuilding the community centered on God. But um, we learned there that he shouldn't go out measuring to build walls because God is building a community without walls. Do you remember? Because walls restrict the size of the community and God wants an overwhelmingly large number of people because walls give us a false sense of security, whereas God says he himself will protect his people. And then finally, we saw uh, the uh, fourth vision, vision of the high priest, initially filthy, but now robed in splendor, because actually in order to rebuild his people, God needs to forgive them. God needs to forgive us. That's what we've seen uh, so far. But uh, now, we're going to move on. Move on to, uh, actually, a vision which is the pair, in many ways, to the fourth vision. The fourth and the fifth visions are the central ones in a group of eight. And here, in uh, verse 2, we see that vision. 
I see, says Zechariah, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, seven channels to the light. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. We can't actually be certain what this lamp uh, looked like. Most uh, ancient um, Christian and Jewish interpretations suggest that it was a standard um, seven-branched lampstand. This, for instance, is an ancient Jewish picture of what this lampstand may have looked like. Or uh, here's a more modern uh, uh, representation of it. Actually, the most natural way to read the description of this is not quite like the NIV portrays it. The most natural way to read the description is that it's actually seven lampstands, each of them with seven uh, branches on them all supplied by a common pool of oil. If it's just the ordinary seven-branched lampstand, we, we know where there was such a lamp very prominently in the life of Israel. It was in the temple, before the temple had been destroyed. It was lit all the time, symbolizing the light of God's presence. Perhaps, then, Zechariah has received a vision, then, of this lamp in the temple, which was called the menorah. If, actually, we're right that this is seven lampstands, each with seven branches, then it's, the, then it's probably the, that, that menorah with knobs on, so to speak, almost literally. Not just as bright as it had been in the temple, but now seven times brighter. More, more important, though, than the precise form of that, uh, uh, that lamp is what it signified. This lamp was given to Zechariah to convey one very clear message. God works by his Spirit. Look at verse 6. Peter read to us... Um, uh, earlier. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Actually, in one sense, the angel hasn't yet properly answered Zechariah's question. Zechariah said, what is this? And the angel actually goes on to a long digression addressed to this man, Zerubbabel, before finally, only very briefly and enigmatically, explaining what the uh, lampstand is all about in verse 10. What the angel has done, you see, in response to Zechariah when he says, what is this, is he's cut straight to the direct application that Zechariah needs to know in his day. He addresses a man called Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel in those days was uh, an important figure because he was the ruler of the people of God in, uh, uh, in Zechariah's uh, uh, Jerusalem. More than that, actually, Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. So he carried on his shoulders, so to speak, all the promises that had been given to David and actually had been given to Abraham before. 
God had promised Abraham that uh, he would um, make his descendants as innumerable as the stars in the sky, that his descendants would be blessed. And God had promised most significantly that he would dwell with his people. Hence the fact, you see, that they were so desperately trying to rebuild the temple, which stood as the symbol of God dwelling in their midst. But how are they going to rebuild this temple? How are they going to see God's promises fulfilled? How is Zerubbabel, who has the responsibility for seeing God's promises fulfilled in his day, going to do it? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zerubbabel, your great skill is not going to rebuild the temple and have me back dwelling in your midst. Your military might is not going to do that. No, my spirit is going to do that. My spirit, says God, is going to overcome any opposition that you may uh, meet. What are you, verse 7, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become level ground. The book of, Zechari- uh, of Ezra actually tells us what that, that mighty mountain of opposition was. It was a local Persian administrator called Tatanai, who was actually very anxious about their rebuilding of the, of the temple. Tatanai interrogated the Jewish people about that project. And perhaps in confidence that God would work it out, they told him with disarming frankness what they were doing. Tatanai then sent a report up to King Darius, saying, uh, asking what to do, whether this uh, 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 building project should be stopped. And amazingly, Darius found an old instruction, not only that the building project should go ahead, but that the Persian Empire should pay for it. And so quietly God worked it out. Not only that they could build the temple, but they wouldn't even have to pay for it to be built. That is one of the ways that God works by his spirit, even today. I've heard so many stories like that. I remember particularly one pastor that um, I know um, uh, telling me that uh, they were looking for a new building for their church when completely out of the blue, the, uh, the brewers, I think they were Watneys, um, contacted the church and said, would they like a building to use? He said it was the only church in the country where um, the mention of Watney's pale ale le- uh, led to them, everyone saying, praise the Lord. That's how God works. We're praying that God will allow us to continue meeting in, the, in this school. And if he does, it won't be because of our great negotiating skills. It won't be because of the massive amount of money that we have that we can offer them. We haven't got it. It will be because God works by his spirit to achieve his purposes. Overcoming all opposition that he wants to overcome. Verse 7, again. 
Then he will bring out the capstone, the shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. He will complete his work. So Zerubbabel says, God, don't be disheartened by the modest nature of your achievements. You will achieve exactly what I intend you to achieve, no more and no less. Verse 10, who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That word translated plumb line, unfortunately, is rather mysterious. It may mean um, what the NIV says it means, in which case we're, we're to imagine Zerubbabel perhaps doing the final checks on the building to check that it's okay. It may actually mean the very last stone that is to be put in the building. Uh, as, as today, we have uh, topping out ceremonies for, 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 for big buildings. Perhaps that's what it's talking about. But the general sense is clear. Zerubbabel, your project may seem insignificant right now, but I will bring it to completion. And I will bring with that great joy. His spirit is more powerful than any earthly might, just as that uh, lamp is, uh, is, is brighter than any earthly lamp. His spirit overcomes all opposition. His spirit achieves his purposes. His spirit brings joy. Because through his spirit, God sees, God controls, God is powerfully present. That's obviously uh, uh, what, um, when the final explanation comes to us, what uh, the angel is trying to say. These, it seems to be the lamps, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. That lamp lighting up the world signified that God can see everywhere in the whole world. And where he sees, he controls. Not by power, not by might, by my spirit. That is what this vision means. Just four years later, that promise to Zerubbabel came true. And they completed the temple. Fascinatingly, the New Testament then takes this vision and this promise that came to Zechariah and Zerubbabel and gives it new shape, especially in the book of Revelation, as uh, I, uh, I said earlier. The book of the, uh, Revelation actually takes this image of the lampstand and applies it in, 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 in very exciting ways. First of all, in uh, Revelation chapter 4, we find that there is a great vision of God in heaven. And John tells us, before the, uh, the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the sevenfold spirit of God. That, that corresponds with what we've already learned, doesn't it, from Zechariah. 
Seven lamps representing the Spirit of God, called sevenfold because the, the number seven is always used for completeness. The completely powerful, all-seeing Spirit of God is burning there in heaven in the presence of God. Then the image changes in um, Revelation 5 and we see a lamb looking as if it had been slain in heaven. But John tells us that that lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, an old spirit of God sent out into all the earth. See, this vision clearly builds on the Zechariah's vision. Because remember, Zechariah said that the lampstand represented the seven eyes of the Lord. But according to Revelation now, God's, God's spirit is, is released into all the earth in association with Jesus. The lamb who was slain. It's confusing imagery, but very, very exciting when you start to, to grasp what it means. Because you see, what it's saying is what we learned last week. That it's as the forgiveness that Jesus won for us on the cross is applied to this world. So the Spirit is working powerfully in the world now. The Lamb who was slain has the seven eyes on himself. As we see Jesus, as we uh, see the, uh, the crucified Jesus and see that he died for our sins and know that we can be forgiven, so the Holy Spirit is working powerfully in this world. Sent out into all the earth to help people see Christ crucified. Actually, with that image in our minds, we can start to understand the picture in Revelation chapter 1 where Jesus is depicted walking amongst the lampstands and we are told the lampstands are the seven churches. Seven churches as representative churches addressed in the book of Revelation. All the churches. God's light-giving spirit is present in his church throughout this world radiating the light of the presence of God. The churches are the lampstands. So we uh, now can see that actually all the promises that were made to Zechariah and Zerubbabel in his day apply in an even more powerful way, according to Revelation, to today's world. God is working here, not by power, not by might, but by his Spirit. He doesn't throw people to the ground. He doesn't often display his amazing power in, uh, in healing miracles or amazing manifestations, though he can do. 
Because God's not very interested in that sort of power evangelism. God is working here by showing people Jesus. The Lamb who was slain. The Lamb with seven eyes who represents the Spirit sent out in all the world so that all the world can see Jesus as their Saviour. He died for their sins. The Spirit overcomes all opposition. Today, the opposition that uh, we face more than anything else is people is those forces which would turn us away from Jesus. God has got hold of you. He will not let you go. He will complete his work. As the Apostle Paul says in, the, in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a work in you will carry it on to completion, not building a temple. Or is it building a temple? <coughs> building you as a temple where God's Spirit dwells. There is no greater joy than knowing that, than knowing God's love and forgiveness and reconciliation and protection for all eternity. As you study the grasp, then, how the New Testament takes a promise about building a building years ago and applies it powerfully through Christ to God building us into the people he wants us to be. God works by his spirit. But actually, uh, Zechariah has another question. And he's rather insistent about it. Verse 11. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And again I asked him, what are these two olive trees beside the two golden pipes that pour out golden oil? Those two olive trees that supplying the fuel to the lamp. If the lamp is God's spirit in this, what provides the power to the lamp? The answer is actually rather surprising, verse 14. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. God is actually teaching us that he works through his faithful servants. He works through his faithful servants. In the immediate context, Actually, the uh, two anointed ones are, uh, seem to be clearly the high priest, who was a man called Joshua, who we saw last week, and this ruler, Zerubbabel, who we've already met. As we saw last, la last week, though, those two characters, the high priest and the ruler, actually anticipate Jesus Jesus in the New Testament is described as the great high priest, as the final ruler in the line of Zerubbabel. That makes the vision more understandable, actually, if we read it as Christians. 
because we can see how Jesus then supplies in one sense the power to the Holy Spirit. We've already traced how the, how the New Testament works, works that out. But if we thought we got um, the complexities of this vision tight, um, then uh, unfortunately we've got a surprise. Because um, uh, although all of that is true, when the book of Revelation actually starts to use this vision again, it applies it in a quite surprising way. It speaks of two witnesses. And clearly in Revelation chapter 11, those two witnesses are God's church. Two witnesses because it needed two witnesses to be reliable in, a, in the ancient world. And those two witnesses bear witness to Christ. They suffer in Revelation 11, even die for Christ. And we are told, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Okay, lampstands we've got in our minds. We can see how the church represents the lampstands. But, says uh, uh, John in Revelation, they also represent the olive trees. God's faithful people actually supply the power of the Spirit's witness. The light of God's witness amongst us depends upon us being like those two witnesses. Prepared, actually, to follow Christ. Prepared to bear witness to Christ. Prepared at the cost of anything to serve him, even if it means death. So that's the picture we have. A picture which is, um, yes, complex in its fulfillment. But a picture in which at root is actually stunningly simple. God's faithful people, his church, are the place where God's spirit works. God's faithful people, his church, supply the power, amazingly enough, for God to work in this world. So here's my question. It's a simple one. Will you be God's faithful witness? Will you be prepared to live under the God who works not by power or by might, but by his Spirit? and therefore shine for him. Will you be prepared as Revelation 11 makes it plain to actually put all other things second to the one great calling that God gives us?
to be faithful to Christ, even unto death. Will you fulfill that picture? See, I've noticed something. I've noticed in the last five or ten years that people find it increasingly easy to say no. No, I won't do that because I'm too tired. No, I won't do that because I'm too busy. No, I won't do that because that's not my central calling. No, I won't do that because God wants me to enjoy his grace and doing things for God sounds dangerously like salvation by works and I don't want to come anywhere near that. No, I won't do that because someone else can do it much better. No, I won't do that because I'm a broken person and I need to be healed. You can't expect me to be a soldier for Christ. I get the hospital bed. Someone else can go out and fight for him. No. In the end, Jesus, you're not worth it. No. I'm talking about people who profess to be Christians, actually. Are we really prepared to trust that God will work by His Spirit and not just rely on our strength? Are we really prepared to serve as God's faithful witnesses? God does extraordinary things by His Spirit in this world. All He asks of us is for us to say, yes. Let's pray. As for you, there's something important you need to say to God. Now's your time.